out there and bust them crackins. I almost feel sorry for them. Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 12, San Francisco, 1948. I'm Keith Pilly. Okay, so last week we talked mostly about the political headwinds as the 1948 presidential election got rolling. The Republicans nominated Thomas Dewey, who had been defeated by the FDR Truman ticket in 1944. This time around, Dewey's chances were seen as much better given Truman's massive unpopularity and General Douglas MacArthur's willingness to serve as an attack dog. Within the Truman camp, as we discussed, the hope for re-election lay in a decisive encounter with the creatures, even if no one was sure how that was going to happen. This week, Harry Truman learns to be careful what you wish for. On August 9th, 1948, the latest stalemated status quo in the Pacific finally broke. The heavy cruiser Minneapolis was on station with the destroyers Paulson and Lee, approximately 15 miles out to sea from the Golden Gate, part of Task Force 61, the force detailed to protect the San Francisco Bay Area. At approximately 10.30 a.m., lookouts on the Lee saw something moving through the water at high speed, closing on the ships. As it got closer, they could see that it was Sigurd the Sea Serpent, as he was called, the least seen, least understood of the major primary creatures. Lee went to general quarters immediately, radioed an alarm back to task force headquarters, and lined up with Paulson and Minneapolis to engage with the creature. The fight was short, savage, and confused. Radio communications from the three ships were garbled, and subsequent events left few survivors to interview, so naval investigators have been unable to piece together what actually happened. What is known is that Captain Dale Plagic of the Minneapolis radioed at 10.39 that he was leading the destroyers in to engage. Six minutes of garbled tactical transmissions followed until at 10.46, a clear, uncoded voice transmission comes through. Quote, Plagic here. We're going down fast. My crew's in the water. Lee's capsized and Paulson is broken in half. I see a hell of a lot of surface churn heading your way fast. Goodbye. End quote. Seagird had sent Minneapolis and her cohorts to the bottom quickly, but the pickets had at least raised the alarm. The air west of San Francisco Bay crackled with electricity as the ships of Task Force 61 frantically contacted each other with orders to form up for battle, centering around the battleship USS Maryland. The force converged in between Seagird and the Golden Gate and moved outward to intercept the creature, along with whatever was following him in Captain Plagic's last warning transmission. Sink Pack headquarters in San Diego was also monitoring the transmissions, and as Task Force 61 formed up, Admiral Spruance sent down orders for other elements of Third Fleet to prepare to head to San Francisco if the situation escalated. In response, Task Forces 37 and 44, stationed off Los Angeles and San Diego, respectively, began to muster in preparation for flank runs up the coast. Spruance was aware, however, that at their best speeds, the forces would take hours to reach San Francisco after the order was given. In the seas off San Francisco, 
the Maryland force engaged Sigurd, who was now joined by a sizable collection of lesser creatures. Admiral Kevin Moore, commanding Task Force 61, ordered Maryland and the others to open up with their naval guns loaded with specialized new anti-creature munitions, 16-inch incendiary shells and Maryland's big guns, smaller bore shrapnel and flechette rounds designed to tear flesh in the other ship's smaller guns. Matching this new ammunition was new doctrine. The gunnery crews of the ships had been retrained to fire their weapons at flat line-of-sight trajectories with quick turnarounds between shots. Gone, it was hoped, would be the arcing misses and friendly fire casualties of the new Caledonia disaster. And initially, it seemed to be working. The new munitions weren't enough to kill Sigurd, but they slowed his advance. And they seemed to be more effective against the lesser creatures, both deterring them and killing a few. Moore continually maneuvered Maryland and the rest of Task Force 61 to keep them between the creatures in the bay, which left him little choice but to allow the creatures to close on his force, albeit slowly. But the feeling was that with sufficient force, this attack could be repulsed. Moore radioed Sinkpack to request backup, and Spruance gave the order. Task forces 37 and 44 were to proceed at flank speed to San Francisco from their positions to the south. Off the Golden Gate, Moore continued to throw assets into making his stand. His ships were holding their own with surface gunnery, but the new style of combat required a more ongoing, profligate use of ammunition than the crews were used to, or that the ship's magazines were designed for, frankly. Several ships, including the Maryland, reported that they were getting troublingly low on ammunition. To give them a break, Moore ordered Task Force 61's air wing, the fleet carrier Ticonderoga, and a few smaller escort carriers to launch an airstrike of dive bombers loaded with napalm munitions. The planes of the air wing were actually distributed between the ships and the shorebound naval air station at Alameda, which allowed for a much quicker than normal launch. Within 20 minutes, 42 dive bombers from several squadrons were on their way, making the short trip out to the encounter on the open sea. Task Force 61's surface elements stopped their firing to reduce the chance of accidental friendly fire contact between planes and rounds in the air. Commander Chris Montague, leading the strike, was at 6,000 feet positioning the lead elements for their attack dives on Seagird when he radioed that it suddenly looked like the sea around the creature, quote, started boiling, end quote. Montague and his helldivers commenced their dives and used their napalm to turn a stretch of the surface of the Pacific Ocean into an inferno, killing several lesser creatures and driving many others, including Seagird, temporarily back down into the depths. But as they formed back up to return, they could see the boiling seas around the flaming oil erupt as hundreds, possibly thousands, of lesser creatures emerged, heading straight for the Maryland group. Montague radioed back the report, adding ominously, quote, I think I see a large pink mass and a large black mass in the middle of all the oil. I think we need to consider the possibility that this is a multi-primary event, end quote. From here, things deteriorated quickly. The mass of creatures reached Maryland and the rest of Task Force 61 within minutes, and once again the ships proved to be nearly helpless at point-blank range, unable to use their primary weapons without damaging each other. Several ships were equipped with the Ring of Fire defense system, and a few had electric deck defense systems installed, and these worked for a while, but before long, Ring of Fire burners had been ripped away, 
electric deck defense capacitors were drained, and the onslaught of tentacle and serpent body never stopped. As the forest retreated to shallower water, the kelp man emerged, horribly fire-scarred from Pearl Harbor but stronger than ever, and began capsizing ships at will. By 2.30 p.m., Task Force 61 no longer existed. Maryland rested on the bottom of the ocean, along with the cruisers Portland and Dallas, the escort carrier Bellow Wood, and the destroyers King, Carlin, and Estevez. The task force's remaining ships, many of them grievously damaged, were scattered in all directions after fleeing pell-mell at top speed. El Pulpo, Blackjack Kraken, Seagird, the Keltman, and a virtually uncountable mass of secondary and lesser creatures were headed towards San Francisco Bay with nothing but water between them and the Golden Gate. Task Forces 37 and 44 were still on their flank runs to San Francisco, but Task Force 37, the closer of the two, was at least an hour away still. Aircraft from Task Force 37, along with rearmed remnants from the Task Force 61 air wing, harassed the creatures, but at this point had nowhere near the numbers or the firepower to stop them from entering San Francisco Bay, which they did. The Kelpman and a new lesser Kelpman ripping down sections of the Golden Gate Bridge as they passed. The few civilian ships still out in the water in the bay were dispatched almost instantly by the lesser sea creatures as the primaries and secondaries methodically set to laying waste to the port facilities, both military and commercial, in the north end of the bay, including San Francisco, Oakland, and the bay's many working islands. Working virtually unopposed, they managed to reduce the ports to an operative rubble within an hour, with Navy planes orbiting helplessly above the entire time, relaying the progress of the destruction to the approaching fleets and to the rest of the world at large. Task Force 37's surface elements, under command of Admiral Kelly Turner, arrived at the Golden Gate at 4.23 in mid-afternoon. The constant air presence over the bay reported the continuing destruction of harbor facilities in San Francisco and Oakland, as well as the naval facilities at Mare and Treasure Islands. But Turner held station outside the bay, radioing to Spruance that in his view it would be suicidal to take surface ships into the constrained space of the bay. Spruance, a deeply committed believer in trusting the judgment of commanders on the scene, replied his assent, directing Turner to use his discretion to do what was best. Turner launched a series of airstrikes, hoping to dislodge the creatures and drive them out of the bay for a confrontation. But the tons of bombs dropped did little but add to the destruction of the port facilities. Now, unacknowledged on the radio, but surely present in everyone's minds, was the fact that Turner's command of the situation was temporary. Task Force 44 was rapidly approaching from the south, under the command of none other than Admiral William Halsey. Halsey's public profile had plummeted after Operation Typhoon, and he had considered resigning. But in the end, he chose to stay in the Navy and remained the most senior of the admirals under Spruance's command. By naval tradition, etiquette, and procedure, the more senior Halsey would supplant Turner as the overall commander at San Francisco once Task Force 44 arrived, unless Spruance specifically ordered otherwise, a call the tradition-respecting Spruance was extremely loath to make. Knowledge that his time commanding the situation was limited led Turner to step up the air attacks, but they were fruitless. 
If anything, the situation continued to deteriorate as the kelp man waded out of the port and into the city of San Francisco itself and began laying waste to buildings and streets. Mass civilian panic ensued as citizens jammed the streets trying to escape. By the time Halsey and Task Force 44 had arrived, the port areas of both San Francisco and Oakland were in rubble, and the kelp man's rampage through the city of San Francisco had led to a death toll numbering in the thousands. On an open radio channel, Halsey sharply rebuked Turner for allowing this to happen, and formally assumed control of the combined force. Spruance from San Diego acknowledged Halsey's assumption of command and gave him discretion to do as he saw fit to salvage the situation, but admonished him to make sure to prioritize the safety of the fleet. Where everyone around him saw defeat looming, Bill Halsey saw an opportunity. All of the known primary creatures were in the bay. Yes, conditions in the bay would limit the fleet's maneuverability, true, but they would also constrain the movement of the creatures. The combined task force was smaller than the massed third fleet he'd led at New Caledonia, but it was still significant. And this was a chance to lead it into a known situation, as opposed to the stumbling encounter battle that had happened the year before. And with the kelp man raging through the city, an attack from the bay might lure it back out into the water and stop that carnage. For Halsey, the choice could not have been more clear. He ordered the aircraft carriers of the two task forces, with a handful of destroyers screening them, to hold station in the open ocean and maintain the air presence over the bay to give the rest of the force tactical intelligence. He then ordered the surface ships to form a battle line and steam into San Francisco Bay to engage the creatures at short range. This, he radioed to a nervous spruance, was going to be the turning point, the moment at which the creature's menace began to end. Within half an hour of passing the Golden Gate, he was dead. Without sea room to maneuver, and facing an unprecedented concentration of lesser sea creatures in addition to all of the known primaries, much of Halsey's fleet was immobilized within minutes. Ships with ring of fire and electric deck defense systems found, the, found their systems overwhelmed. Ships with hull razors found the sharp pieces ripped off by lesser creatures willing to sacrifice parts of themselves, or blunted by Seagird and other armored constrictors. The great ships were held in place, and then torn apart by the great tentacled creatures, or had holes punched through their hulls by the serpents, or were turned onto their sides by the kelp man, who was at least lured away from the city. By the time Captain David Collins, a junior member of Halsey's staff, and apparently the last person in flag plot on the USS Missouri to die, ordered a general retreat, seven battleships, nine cruisers, and 14 destroyers lay in broken pieces on the floor of San Francisco Bay. A pathetic, much-reduced remnant made its way out of the Golden Gate and, linking up with the reserved aircraft carriers, fled at full speed towards San Diego. The sea creatures were left with uncontested possession of San Francisco Bay. Within the city of San Francisco, at least 5,000 civilians were dead in the streets near the port. The true count would never be known for sure, and subsequent events would render any attempt at post hoc determination moot. Although it was in some respects a superfluous gesture, the citizenry at large having decided on their own to try to get the hell out while the kelp man was rampaging, at 5.51 p.m. local time, Governor Earl Warren 
ordered the mandatory evacuation of the cities of San Francisco and Oakland. Oakland resident Ella Drews later told the FCDP, quote, I know I'm never going to forget that day. I wish to God I could, but I'll never forget it. We started out with a normal, quiet morning. And then, way off in the distance, some booms. They sounded like thunder at first. And we were all used to the sound. The Navy or the Coast Guard set stuff off just out to sea all the time, sometimes for practice, sometimes because there was a monster out there. And the sound carried a long way. So sometimes you could hear the booms off in the distance, even if they were outside of the bay. But then we could hear it get closer and closer. And suddenly it seemed like the sky was just full of planes. Everyone on my street had just been out doing normal things, but we all slowly started looking at each other over our fences, and the question was just out there. What was going on? My husband brought our radio out into the garage and turned it on as loud as possible so that everyone in the next few houses could hear the news so we could find out what was up. And a small crowd gathered in our driveway as we heard the news reports. At first, we were all excited and cheering. This was it. Our boys were going to smash those bastards. And then it just got more and more grim. Reporters talking about ships on fire and men drowning. And the whole time, we could hear the noise getting closer and closer. Our house wasn't that close to the bay, but it still sounded like we could hear explosions a few blocks away. And even worse were the giant groaning sounds. I guess that was the sound of metal being bent and twisted. It was horrible. We all stood and sat there for a few hours, I guess in a kind of shock, listening to it unfold on the radio. I remember the announcers' voices getting more and more excited as things went on and the disaster got worse. Suddenly, they broke into the main report with an announcement that we were supposed to evacuate. Whole city of Oakland, and I guess a bunch of others. Half an hour to get out. We were all just dumbfounded at this. My neighbor and I started arguing about if this was real when a police car came rolling down the street. The officers inside had a bullhorn, and they kept leaning out of the window and yelling out about the evacuation order. When they saw the crowd on our block, they told us to break it up and get moving. There was a disaster on. We were supposed to evacuate to some rally point in Walnut Creek. They said the highway patrol would be there to direct us further. That got us going. Ken and I packed as many clothes as we could for ourselves and our daughter, as we could in 15 minutes, and we offered our neighbor Nancy some space in the back seat. She lived alone and didn't have a car. By quarter after six, we were on our way. We spent a lot of that night in a giant traffic jam on our way out of Oakland. I remember driving away, looking back, and telling myself that this was all just a passing panic and that we'd be back home by the end of the week. End quote. Ella Drews, who would spend the next two years in a refugee camp with her husband and daughter, would never see that house again. And that is it for this episode. Um, thanks, as always, for listening. Um, just know you are appreciated if you've gotten you know, far enough to hear me saying this. Please join me next week for an intense one as we see what happens now that the sea creatures own San Francisco Bay. Thanks, and be well. Some crackings. Line up all them battleships.
seed food packing. Train them guns out, boys. Get out there and bust them crackins. Anchors away, son.